Liz is going to read to us um, the passage that in a few moments Phil is going to speak from. Liz, thank you so much. So we're going to read now from Luke chapter 16. If you've got one of the Red Church Bibles, it's on page 1050, 1050. It's Luke chapter 16, and we're going to read the first half through to verse 18. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Thanks, Liz. If you can have your Bibles open at that place, we're going to look at that passage now together. So we've had a a break over the Christmas period. Uh, we, we, we were looking at Luke before Christmas. We're going to go back to Luke uh, for the rest of this term. And last time we were in Luke, we looked at the parable of the lost sons. And we saw that the parable tells us what God is like. God is loving and compassionate and gracious and, and abounding in riches. And we looked at what we're like. Actually, the way we treat God is like this. We want his stuff, but we don't want him. And we looked at what salvation is like. God is willing to humiliate himself in order to welcome his children back into his kingdom. 
But although that parable ends, the book doesn't. And Luke continues to teach and record Jesus' teaching immediately after the parable. So in chapter 16, verse 1, we're still actually in the same room as the room that he was in whilst he was teaching the parable of the lost sons. Jesus is in, in, in teaching mode, but he turns to his disciples and he teaches them. And then in chapter 16, verse 14, we're finally told how the Pharisees ridiculed all that Jesus said. All that he said in the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons, all that he said in the parable of the shrewd manager. So we have to ask, why did Jesus record this parable as relevant to the parable of the lost sons. Well, if the parable of the lost sons is about the way we do God, wanting God's stuff without wanting God, then Luke's point here is that we see that attitude, that heart, that that mindset, we see it best in our attitude towards money. And why do we need to hear this? Why is it relevant for our culture? Well, just look at modern Britain. And ask yourself the question, do we want God's stuff more than we want God? National debt is at the highest level ever. It's going to take us 40 years to bring national debt down to pre-crisis levels. Household debt in this country is the highest in the Western world. Data from last July tells us that the typical UK household currently has credit debt worth £7,600. Total debt on credit cards alone reached £70 billion by the end of last July. Broken down per person, it means that each UK resident has an average credit card debt of £4,000. Britain is in the grip of a have-it-now, pay-for-it-later culture. Culturally, we've been fed a lie. It's fine to have what you want now and stuff the consequences. Advertising and cheap interest rates feed the impression that the merry-go-round is not going to stop. Cheap lending is here forever. So we pile up debt. And we pile it up like we don't owe anything. And we buy like we don't have to pay for anything. We have a cultural greed. It's an inbred culture. And what's also inbred is the taboo about talking about it. And that's why we need to listen to Jesus this morning. We're in the grip of a national sickness, an addiction to cheap money that's slowly rotting us from the inside. And the worst thing is, we've come to believe that God is irrelevant to our pockets. So here in the, in the parable of the shrewd manager, Jesus teaches us that obedience to God, to want God, is wanting him more than his stuff. And obedience is listening to Jesus, his authority from God. And so this is a, this is a sobering passage But Jesus leaves us with a warning, and he encourages us to listen to him. And there are two things that he says. The first is, 
There is a final reckoning, so prepare for it. There's a final reckoning, so prepare for it. Jesus starts with a parable about an estate manager of a rich person. Somehow, this estate manager carelessly or dishonestly manages the estate and causes his master to suffer loss. Verse 1 says, the man was wasting the master's possessions. So the master calls him in and says, right, now let's see what you've done. Verse 2, so he calls him in and asks him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager anymore. It's a fair cop. The manager doesn't argue or defend himself. He doesn't fight the accusation. He accepts it and instead does this in verse 5. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asks the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 liters of olive oil, he replied. The master told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? 30 tons of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 24. The manager is obviously not not wanting a debtor's job, like digging after being sacked. He's got too much self-respect to go on the streets to beg, as verse 3 tells us. So what he does is he sets out to win the favor of the people who are indebted to his master by reducing their debts and making them think kindly towards him. So that when he's finally kicked out, when he's finally got no home, he has at least somewhere to live. Look at verse 4. I know what I'll do, says the shrewd manager. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Now we have to remember that this is a parable. So it's not about the morality of what this man does, nor is it about financial ethics. Whatever analysis you've been told about this action, uh, this, this shrewd manager's actions, and trust me, there are loads and loads and loads of them. One thing is really clear. I'm just cutting it down to the very basics here. The first part of verse 8. Look there with me. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. It's, as I said, a controversial verse. I'm not going to go into all the controversies. But base value, it's there for shock. Jesus is is telling it as as a tool in a parable to shock us, to make us go, hang on, a bit like a Scooby-Doo double take. Fraggy? I won't, please just, can you cut that out of the, um, getting overexcited there. That wasn't in the script either. Um, it's It's a shock value, isn't it? And what's being commended here by Jesus is not the manager's ethics, but his shrewdness in planning for his future. I'll say that again. It's not his ethics that are being commended, but his shrewdness in planning for his future. And the value of that forward thinking is the lesson that Jesus is teaching here. How do we know that? Because Jesus makes a point of it in the rest of verse 8. Look at verse 8, the rest of verse 8 with me. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. 
And that's the thrust of what Jesus wants us to get. The dishonest manager is being commended for his shrewdness in taking action in the light of his immediate future needs and for keeping in mind the harsh realities that he will be facing in the immediate future. And the point is this. On average, pagans and non-believers have no thoughts beyond this present life. But the irony is they're more shrewd and strategic in their money and possessions for their immediate futures than believers are for their eternal futures. They're really clever about immediate future and far cleverer than believers are about eternal future. In other words, there will be, in this life, a final reckoning. We will have to stand before God, like the shrewd manager before his master, And God will call us to account for the way that we have used our money in the light of eternity. So what does it mean? That's the challenge. That's the question that's left hanging there. What does it mean to use our money in order to prepare for eternity? It does sound like an odd concept. And that's why Jesus goes on to explain it and apply it. That's a Greek phrase. Oh, there we go. That's a Greek phrase that calls to mind someone banging their fist on the table. It's as though Jesus is saying, even if you forget absolutely everything else, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus is urging his disciples to make use of worldly wealth. It doesn't mean use worldly, it doesn't, it doesn't mean use money in worldly ways or use money acquired through worldly methods to achieve good purposes. So you're not to go from here saying, ah, now I can legitimately play the lottery in order to give it to charities. Oh, and keep a little bit for myself. That's not what Jesus says. Neither is Jesus saying you can buy your way into heaven. This is not some kind of penance here, or um, Peter's pence here. No. Jesus says in verse 9, we're to use our wealth to prepare us for our eternal future by helping others or friends and helping them to prepare for their eternal future as well. In other words, we are to literally invest our money in sharing the gospel. That's the thrust of this. Use your money to invest in the gospel. The second thing Jesus says, evaluate how you use money. This is what the shrewd manager is actually teaching us. Evaluate how you use money. Listen to verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, how will you, how will, who will trust you with true riches? In other words, Jesus is saying, look at your heart. Look at the way you use money. That tells you what your heart looks like. All our activities tell us about our character. Character is character. No no, no matter whether we've been entrusted with a lot or entrusted with little things. 
And Jesus is specifically saying, do you know, if you, if the way you handle your money, which is the little things in this verse, tells us whether you will be entrusted with true riches, the big things of the kingdom of God. What you do with your money tells us about your character. So, for example, do you tithe? Are you generous towards the poor, the marginalized, the needy in the church, the needy in our community? Or do we cling on to our money with reason after reason as to why we need it for ourselves? Do we squander it without thinking about the kingdom of heaven? Do we have an investing in eternity attitude towards money? So here's a great example. When it comes to buying a Christian book for someone, do you kind of go, wow, that's investing, rather than, oh, that's going to be a bit of a hit, isn't it? When, when, uh, when, you, when, you're in a small, when you're in a study group, and I have to be honest, I've done this. When I'm in a study group and someone says, oh, the, the material will cost £3.50, I kind of go, well, that's a bit of much for a study group, isn't it? Oh, golly. The same amount for a cup of coffee at Costa. But for some reason, I have more resentment towards that study material than the cup of coffee. It's just inconsistent, isn't it? With our children... Do we spend out on educational trips at school, but bulk at the cost of sending them on Christian conferences and camps? So easy to do, isn't it? You see, the way we deal with our money is a good indicator of how forward-looking we are in eternity, which is the big thing coming. And, And that's why debt is so out of character to Christian living. Debt brought about by greed, whether that's a bigger mortgage for a bigger house or a credit card bill that is simply mushroomed for another day of reckoning. That kind of debt says we're so obsessed with God's stuff that we can't prioritize God's kingdom enough to invest in it. And that's why that kind of debt is totally out of character with Christian living. Because it reveals to us how important God's kingdom really is to us. If we're racking up debt, we're not being wise in we're not being wise in the small things that God gives us. And if that's you this morning, if you say you're a Christian and you're in in, in, in up to your eyeballs in debt, then it's time to repent of your narrow thinking. It's time to repent of behavior that is out of keeping with what Christ challenges us here. And and practically, we've got a CAP course. It's happening in in a few weeks' time. CAP stands for Christians Against Poverty, and they're a charity committed to helping people budget their money so that finances are characterized by godly stewardship. And listen, you don't have to be in debt. You don't have to be up to your eyeballs in debt. It might be just that you're, you're kind of getting to the end of the month and things are pretty tight but not too tight. Well, honestly, do the cap course. Make sure things are less tight so you've got more to invest in the gospel. Get your name down on that course. Show Christ that you have in mind the small things, your money, so that when big things arrive, the day of judgment, you will have a friend, Jesus Christ, who will call you to account and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. 
The third application is this. If you're a slave to mammon, you cannot be a servant of God. Look at verse 13 with me. If you're a slave to mammon, you cannot be a servant of God. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Why do I use the Greek word mammon instead of money? Well, it's a word that we've become familiar with through older translations. And it's hinted here in the NIV by the fact that the word money at the end of verse 13 is capitalized. Mammon means more than just money. It's a word that indicates an attitude towards money, a word that has become shorthand for a heart greedy for money and wealth and fortune and fame. If you want a summary of everything that mammon represents, then buy a copy of OK Magazine or Vanity Fair. And I use that word because it's a useful reminder that money itself is not the issue. But what the issue is, is the greed in our hearts that longs for a feeling of control that having money brings. That's what mammon is. Mammon is the feeling you get when when you look at the big lottery, how much the big lottery winner has won, and you secretly regret not having bought a ticket, and you're secretly jealous of them. Mammon is the feeling we get, we get when we regret not riding the Bitcoin craze to its height. Mammon is the feeling we get when we're just not satisfied with what God has given us, and we need more money and stuff. That is mammon. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, the truth is that mammon is wanting God's stuff without wanting God. It's wanting God's stuff to serve us and our greed or simply wanting enough of it to make us comfortable to finding our trust and our security and our bedrock in money. That's what mammon is. And it's dangerous. Why? Because the more we put our trust in money, the more our hearts want more of that, we want less of God. And we're drawn away from knowing him and wanting him. And this morning, if you've realized that mammon is written all over your soul, then go to Jesus. Run away from mammon and towards Jesus, because the only antidote to the greed of our hearts is a real confession to him about how we want his stuff more than we want him. The only antidote to the greed of our hearts is a true sorrow at having that heart. And a genuine prayer to him, to Jesus, asking him to forgive us. The only antidote to the greed of our hearts is to ask him for a heart that makes him Lord, more important than money, more important than stuff. Lord, our highest possession, our king, our authority, our God. And anything less is idolatry. Anything less is wanting his stuff more than him. And I urge you to do that. Why? Because so when our money fails, we'll be able to say on the day that we're called to account, Jesus is Lord, not mammon. And if you haven't, if you haven't 
said Jesus is Lord yet, can I encourage you to do that this morning? Talk to the person you've come with. If you'd like to talk to me, I'm, I'm, I'll be at the door, just, just give me a nod. Why? Because the day of reckoning is coming. And our hearts are full of mammon. And Jesus invites us to lay it down. And if you're a Christian here this morning, but you found yourself wandering towards mammon, then can I encourage you to draw a line? Do, do something small. It doesn't have to be big. It just has to be something small. For example, De Stafford have asked us if we have got 20 spare Bibles. That will cost about 50 pounds. If, if you want to say, look, Lord God, mammon has ruled my life and I want to, to, draw, to, to give you a marker to say, I don't want it to rule my life anymore, then come and see me and say, I, uh, come and see me and offer to, to, to buy those Bibles for De Stafford. That's what I mean by drawing a line. Do something, take action that says to God, this is a marker in my life, in my heart, where once I, I, I was longing for mammon and mammon was beginning to rule me and I don't want it to do anymore, I repent. And as a marker of that repentance, I want to give and invest in God's kingdom. Will you do that this morning? It doesn't have to be those Bibles. Um, I'd love it if 20 people came up to me and said, I, I want, to, to, I want to, to draw the line. It doesn't have to. It just, just draw the line. Practically draw the line. As a Christian, confess your sin and, and say to God, here is my marker. And lay down that marker and say, Lord God, no longer shall mammon rule me. Do that practically if you're a Christian here this morning. But the last section of the passage is a funny one. It, it seems slightly out of place at first, but then as you look at it, do you know it's relevant to all that teaches, Jesus teaches in this passage because those who don't listen to Jesus are directly challenged by him. And that's the second point and the final point this morning. There is a final reckoning, so listen to Jesus. There is a final reckoning, so listen to Jesus. And it's here the passage gets really personal. So the Pharisees are sat there, and they loved money. And they loved money because their culture said that their riches were a sign that they were blessed by God. That's why their grumbling in 15 verse 1 turns to ridicule in 16 verse 14. And Jesus turns to them and calls them out. There they are, sniggering at the back of the class. You can almost imagine it, sniggering at the back of the class, like I used to do in maths. And, um, and he turns to them, he calls them out. Guys, stand up. Come on, stand up. The Pharisees who loved money, verse 14, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. You see, the Pharisees rejected the offer of the parable of the prodigal sons. They, they were sniggering and sneering at the back. That offer is simply this, come to your senses about who you are and how you treat God. They rejected it. They rejected the, the challenge of the parable of the shrewd manager. Jesus was challenging them to use their wealth to prepare for the coming kingdom of God, and they snigger at him. And that's why Jesus calls them out. 
That's why he tells them that the things of this world that govern their worldview and, the motiv- and that motivates their passions, the things that people value highly, fame and status and power and fortune and mammon for personal gain, those are the things that are detestable to God. And God will call them out just as Jesus had called them out on that day. And here is his warning. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. Or another translation is, everyone is urged to enter into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. And he's saying this. You may have that attitude. You may snigger. You may ridicule but the kingdom is coming. The Old Testament, that the laws and the prophets were the authority from God up till John's time. The, the Old Testament and, and the law, um, the, 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 that's what the laws and the prophet means, the Old Testament. Well, that was revealing God to the people up until John, but now Jesus has come. The very Son of God is there amongst them. He is the authority of God, and he is now the one we ought to listen to, the one through whom we can understand the law and the prophets better. And therefore, to ridicule Jesus is spiritual suicide. To ridicule the king who will come to judge the living and the dead, the king before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, to ridicule him, the God of the universe, is a short-sighted invitation to draw out his wrath. And then Jesus finishes on this confrontation. It's it's a peculiar note, but follow me. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We don't have time to cross-reference too much, but just in case the quote unsettles you, Matthew uses the quote to teach about divorce divorce further and, and, and adds this, unless the grounds are infidelity. But but it's important to note Jesus is not necessarily teaching about divorce here. That's a topic for another time. The reason he says this here is because he wants to prove the Pharisees uh, of the rightness of his authority. He wants to show them he is the authority here. So they've ridiculed his authority They've, they've, they've rejected what he teaches about, um, in, in, in the, about wanting God's stuff without wanting God. They've rejected the kingdom of heaven. They've rejected his teaching on money. And then he throws in this line about divorce. Why? Because he's stating a law they can't disagree with in order to prove the rightness of his authority in teaching all the other things. Which means Jesus' point is this. You can't ridicule the, the rule maker. Neither by the way we do God, nor by the way we do money. And because what Jesus has taught in this passage, right through from chapter 15, through chapter 16 to this point, because what he's taught is so authoritative... Because Jesus teaches God's truth and speaks God's truth, because he exposes a sinful heart, then to dismiss him is to be unprepared for the day of reckoning. To dismiss him is not to listen to him. 
So what will we do? It's a sobering passage, isn't it? Mammon rules our culture. It's normal to be full of greed here. So let's confess our hearts this morning and give our money so that we have the character to handle eternity. Big things. I would love us to go from here thinking, how can I invest in God's kingdom? How can I give and give and give again so I can see spiritual growth in others? How can, I, how can I not miss out on all that we as a church are doing and sharing and building each other up and building others in the gospel up? How can I, how can I miss out on, on sharing the gospel? How can I miss out on, on, on bigger and better things for the kingdom of God and by not using my money? How can I not use my money? How is it possible that I, I, I'm so short-sighted so as not to, to use my money to serve those things? Oh, Lord God, give me the heart to serve in that way. To serve and serve and give and give and give again and not resent it and not want to keep stuff for myself, but to, to invest and invest and invest for the kingdom of God. So that we show we've got the character. Mammon doesn't rule me, Jesus does. The character handles small things, money, so that when we reach the kingdom of heaven, big things. Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. But let's also listen to Jesus and not reject his authority. We do that by daily reading, by daily praying, by committing ourselves to meeting. Do you know, small groups are becoming more and more important to our spiritual lives here at Oak Hall Church. My prayer is that we would all see the importance of them. And if you're not in a small group now, do ask to join one. We can find, we can find one for you that, will, that you will hopefully be able to commit to. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, then listen to Jesus. Don't ridicule him like the Pharisees did. You can't challenge his authority. Nothing he says is stupid or irrelevant to our lives here and now. Would you talk to him this morning? And ask him to be your Lord, your God, your highest authority. There will be a final reckoning, won't there? Let's prepare for it with our money. Let's prepare for it by listening to Jesus and coming under his authority. And even more so, if you're not a Christian, prepare for it by going to Jesus and asking him to forgive you of the way that you have treated God. And that's what our final song is all about. It's a song that rejoices. It's a song that says, there is a place where I can be free and washed of my sin. It's in the blood of Jesus. And it's him and him alone that can do that. Nothing else will. Not money, not power, not riches, not fame, not fortune. Nothing that this world can provide will do that. But only Jesus and Jesus alone. And we're going to stand and sing this. And can I challenge you that if you're not able to say 
there is a place, a fountain, that is filled with Jesus' blood that, that will wash away my sin, then don't sing this song, but listen to the words. And in your heart, ask yourself, can I proclaim Jesus as King and Lord? Let's stand and sing this song together.